What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today. It's Friday, June 10th, 2022, and I'm your host, Matt Norton, here once again with our returning producer and co-host. You missed him. I missed him. He's back, Nick Janusa. Nick, welcome home, buddy. Oh, Matt, it is good to be back, dude. Two weeks felt like too long. I'm not going to lie. It felt like a little bit too much time away from this pod. I am ecstatic to get back at it. Hey, I hope you're feeling recharged, and uh, I know I said that we missed you. The listeners might have missed you a little more, because I actually saw you last weekend for the first time in months. Nick and I had a reunion. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, I don't know why it's been so hard to like figure plans out, but for some reason, we just have not been able to get it together. We made it happen this weekend. Life got in the way, but we absolutely sent it last weekend. Great weekend. (laughs) Awesome to see you, buddy, and uh, awesome to have you back on the show. Oh, Matt, it's good to be back. And I'm ready to get into the show. All right, then let's not waste any more time. in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way Monday and Friday. And quick shout out, today is World's Oceans Day. At the time of recording. At the time of recording. So it's Wednesday and it's World Oceans Day. So like just try and transport yourself back to Wednesday. Think about it. Okay, now it's World Oceans Day. Yeah, and I will post something on TikTok if I haven't already. I don't know. We're this is time travel at this point. I don't know what to tell you. It's either up or it's going to be up. Just follow our page. <laughs> All right, let's get into our quick hits for the week. God, it's good to be back. All right, the first one is by the Guardians, Alfie Packham, with con- contributions from the Guardians readers. It's titled "It Looks Beautiful: UK Gardeners on Leaving Lawns Uncut for No Mo May." Nick and I spoke about Nomo May on our May 6th episode, and here's a nice follow-up for people who heard that segment and were wondering, wow, I wonder how people participating in Nomo May felt about it after their lawns grew out for a whole month. I mean, I know everyone was just on the edge of their seats nonstop thinking about Nomo May last (laughs) month. Well, here's your update. In the UK, Plant Life is a conservation charity that promoted Nomo May, and this article talks about a few different people's perspectives on the event. Adam Lynette's family saw native plants grow in and also saw the butterfly eggs they found become caterpillars that will soon evolve again and pollinate their family's fields. So not only are butterflies enjoying the plants, but the ecosystem can support them for their entire life cycle now. Wow. All because they're not mowing their lawns. Unbelievable. Another family has decided to plant native seeds, stop mowing their front lawn, and leave the area to itself. They now see small mammals, insects, and birds come in often. Sean South added that most of the people who have stopped by to talk about his front garden like how it looks. Yeah, there were a few people, he said, that seemed like it was a little unruly. But look, if you have a nice little ecosystem in your front lawn with all these native plants, mammals, insects, birds, I mean, I'll take that over a couple upset neighbors. And like you said, most people were uh, were happy about it. 
And one more story that we wanted to highlight from this article is Peter Finley, who said he doesn't mow his lawn often because it is heartbreaking to see the remains of insects afterwards. And he added, people can call it a lawn if they like. I am not interested in having some absurd putting green perfection in its place. (laughs) So Nick, my question is, is it time for us to rethink our relationship with lawns? Matt, I think it is time. And you know how I know it's time? Because I was in the store the other day and I saw a magazine that was like, forget about your lawn, turn it into a garden. And I was like, wow, that's also a great idea too. Like either either one, like either you're producing food in your lawn mm-hmm. or you're making it an, a thriving ecosystem. I'm cool with either one of those. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? Because for years we've had the idea of the the American dream was the white picket fence, the perfect lawn and yeah. you know, maybe a pool in the backyard, maybe a trampoline. Uh, but very rarely do you hear these stories of the American dream means I want to grow my food in my backyard. I want birds to have a haven in my backyard so that mm. my vegetable garden also gets pollinated. And you know, I think there is definitely a place for a lawn but I don't uh, have as much strong feelings towards the lawn, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like when I get a house, I'm going to want a little patch for my dog to go run around for, you know, if I have kids for, for them to play, but it doesn't need to be the entire lot, just flat putting green. Like Peter Finley said. Exactly. That was my other thing too, is like, I'm nowhere close to buying a house, but I'm just thinking about it. And I'm like, I need somewhere for the Bachigaloop to go to the bathroom because she yeah. can't like go run in the, you know, like run in the weeds and, and get a bunch of ticks and stuff. So yeah, you got to have at least a little area that's like just straight up grass. She's used to going on grass. Mm-hmm. She likes the grass. Yeah. And I think that's totally fine. Um, I just, I do like the idea of incorporating grass with wildflowers and with other native plants and with a vegetable garden or, or whatever it is that's going to make you know, instead of just a lawn, it's an ecosystem back there. And to treat it like an ecosystem, I think that's a way healthier relationship with the lawn. Agreed completely. If you haven't already, definitely check out this story. It's it's really cool to see the different animals and the insects that flock to the no-mo zones. And there's even a story about a family's cats playing in their new jungle. And if you like flowers, wildflowers absolutely flourish in no-mo zones. So check it out. Definitely check it out, guys. All right. This next one is titled The Vanishing Rio Grande. Warming takes a toll on a legendary river from Yale's Jim Robbins. Uh, Before we get into the important part, I spent way too much time trying to figure out how to pronounce that river. And yeah, you got it. It's it's Rio Grande or Rio Grande. But anyone who says Rio Grande, that's wrong. (laughs) The Americanized version is still Grande. Um, Anyway, (laughs) the Rio Grande flows from the Rocky Mountains to the U.S.-Mexico border and has been historically used for agriculture. Rising temperatures leading to drought in the North American West have the river at extremely low levels. Experts predict the Rio Grande will dry up completely all the way to Albuquerque this summer for the first time since the 1980s. Water usage on the river is similar to what has happened with the Colorado River and the Gila River. Each farmer's ration of river water was set up when the river was at historic highs, and now those rations are much higher than what the river can actually produce naturally. Yeah, it's, it's like any common resource where you have X amount of that resource and something that naturally replenishes itself. It's going to have periods where it's very high and where it's very low. 
when all of those quotas were created, so you know each farmer can take this much water, like Nick said, it was at a historic high, which means that unless it's going to be replenishing at that level every year, which if it's a historic high, it's not going to, mm. then every year after that, we're going to be taking more than the river can produce naturally. So yeah, really unfortunate situation. And you just got to think that if those rations were made 10, 15 years later, if it was at a low point, you know, maybe we're looking at a very different scenario here, but unfortunately we can only talk about what's currently going on there. And the droughts that are in the American West come with increasing desertification, which the article defines as prolonged drying that scientists say may become a permanent fixture in the region. The region has also seen the number and cumulative damage of wildfires sharply increase. The Rio Grande used to continuously flow throughout the year, which is called a perennial river. Even when it was a perennial river, it had periods of drought and dry stretches. Agriculture and municipal use took more of its water, and the flow changed to intermittent, meaning it had parts of the year where it was flowing, and it also had a dry season. By the mid-1900s, only 20% of the river's flow reached the mouth of the river. Wetlands along the 1900-mile river have dried up, causing some species that live there to disappear. Another factor that's contributing to the river's water flow is climate change, leading to less snowpack. 10 of the last 11 years have seen less snowpack than the average in the San Juan Mountains, which means less snowmelt getting into the river and increasing its water supply. Yeah, and the other major issue is that farmers turned to the river during droughts during the 1950s, which led to a state law passed in 1969 to require sustainable aquifer pumping. That way the aquifers had time to refill. Waiting for that is both time-consuming and expensive. So now you have an issue of some farmers getting to use the water they need, some farmers being forced to use less water, and the river as a whole having more water being used than it can naturally replenish. Add everything that we just mentioned to a warming climate, and you have a really tough situation for the Rio Grande River. Yeah, like when you have everything trending downwards, it's literally just a matter of time before you see a major, major issue. And the issue is not going to go anywhere, you know, unless something happens, there's another water source that maybe just appears out of nowhere or our climate change fix (laughs) of turning salt water into snow. Exactly. Turning it into water or snow works. We're not going to have this issue fixed. Yeah. I mean, the snow melt is really the big one here because those are not snowy regions all the time. The Rio Grande River flows through southern Texas and northern Mexico. It's, It's pretty warm there most of the time. The San Juan Mountains that this river flows through, when those had abundant snowpack during the winter seasons, once that melts, you know, you have replenishment. And unfortunately here, like we said, 10 of the last 11 years, there's been less snowpack than average, which means there's less snow melt than average, which means there's less water being replenished than average. I'm going to go ahead and guess that due to the drought and how Nick mentioned during droughts, farmers will use that river water, we're probably having a lot less water in that water cycle than average. So another thing that I wanted to bring up very quickly is how desertification leads to more dust and why that's a problem. If you've heard of the Dust Bowl, you know of how arid land made it so 
we couldn't grow crops in a once fertile region of the Midwest. Dust also settles on the snow, which this is something I did not realize before reading this, but dust is just going to gather on top of the snow. It's then going to absorb more heat because the dust is darker than snow and it causes the snow to melt faster. I I wouldn't even think that that's something that would happen. Like just because it's a darker color, it causes snow to melt faster. Like, yeah, I mean, it's the same as when you wear a black shirt in the summer compared to, you know, a a white Ah. shirt or something. It's the darker colors are going to absorb and the lighter colors are going to reflect. And unfortunately that works the same way. Funny enough, I did that exact thing today. I'm wearing a black shirt and I just sweat my butt off in the sun. Yeah, it's a it's a hot one today. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this is this is a longer article, but definitely worth checking it out if you're interested in this sort of topic. Um, and if you are, you are going to love June's interview coming out ten days from the time this episode drops, and then a week after that, we actually have a story about the Dust Bowl because. Something very similar to what happened in the Midwest is going on right now in the U.S., and we're going to talk about it. I'm not going to tell you where, but you can find it here on TPT. Nice. All right. With that excellent segue, we're going to take a break. And after that break, two more quick hits for you. Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. And next up, U.S. Postal Service signals it will order more electric trucks by Zach Budrick of The Hill. Another follow-up from a previous episode. This one was on April 1st. On Wednesday of last week, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy said that the USPS is reconsidering the number of new trucks in the fleet that will be electric vehicles. Previously, the USPS was criticized for its layout of the new fleet, which was mostly gas-powered. But DeJoy added that they would continue to look for further opportunities to increase the number of EVs in the fleet. This is something he noted in the initial order, but it seems like it might not just be a talking point this time. There we go, Louie. Not so bad, huh? EVs are looking better than he thought. Yeah, it's funny how all it took was them to make this announcement and pretty much everyone being like, what are you doing? This makes no <laughs> sense. Yeah, well, it's based on this research. Yeah, well, it's really easy to pick apart that as being faulty research, which we're actually going to get into that later in this discussion. But 
Yeah, it was based on faulty research. So, of course, when you publish that research and say, you know, the EVs aren't even that worth it for us, and you have the number one environmental podcast in the world, TPT, being like, most routes can be fully covered by electric vehicles, <laughs> of course you're going to go back and change that. <laughs> we have that much political pull, Matt. I really believe it. I am a pundit. <laughs> Uh, but something's to add. So the announcement here does not give a timeline for when more EVs would be added, if at all. The USPS basically said it could increase the number of EVs at any time, but did not say for sure that they would be doing this. Yeah, and, and that's a really important point. So much like last time in April when this was announced, we got to keep the pressure up and just keep making our voices heard. Um, in April, when the original plan was announced, 16 state attorneys general sued the USPS and that came with support from the Environmental Protection Agency, congressional Democrats, and a coalition of environmental groups. The lawsuit accused DeJoy of making the decision based on miscalculations that overestimated how much it would cost to add more EVs to the fleet. Louis DeJoy is a longtime donor to Republicans and former President Trump, so it's probably fair to be concerned about anything he does involving renewables, EVs, or just, you know, something that will go against big oil in general. Um, and with that, Nick, another question for you. Did our April 1st episode cyberbully Louis DeJoy <laughs> into buying more EVs? <laughs> I think it's a no question. Yes, we absolutely cyberbullied Louis DeJoy. But to be honest, like, not only is this like good for the environment, all this stuff, it's literally more financially sound. Yeah. Like literally like, dude, do the math. It's more financially sound. I don't care if it's going to take an extra, you know, 50 to a hundred to 500 million. It's worth doing because ultimately we're all going to be driving EVs in like 10 to 15 years. So what's the point? Yeah. And something that I remember we brought up was each postal service if they had two electric chargers, this would basically pay for itself in, I forget how many years it was, but if they had one electric charger, it would cost less and it would still pay for itself in a couple of years and service every single route that needed to be serviced. I, I think it was like 95% of USPS routes could be covered with an electric vehicle. Yep. Something astronomical like that. So to have the miscalculations be called out in that lawsuit, that's a great thing. And hopefully, you know, this does lead to Louis DeJoy buying more EVs. But like Nick said, this is something that could increase the number of EVs. It doesn't say we're going to, and it doesn't say when, and it doesn't say by how much. So if this is something you're passionate about, which, I mean, who isn't passionate about getting more gas-powered vehicles off the road and, and going to a carbon-free transition, make your voice heard, whether it's, you know, right to the USPS, right to your senators and your congresspeople and say, hey, this is something that I'm very passionate about because at the end of the day, they work for us. You know, our, our taxes pay for their salaries yep. along with a lot of lobby groups. So that's, that's a good point that I didn't even mean to, mean to bring up. We're fighting big oil here. They have a lot more money than we do. They're going to have a lot more money in donations and they have a lot more money to pay lobbyists than one letter to a senator is going to do. So if we all start writing, if we all start calling, if we all collectively make our voices heard, it sounds silly, but that makes a huge difference. Absolutely. Agreed. And like topic for another day, but 
I don't know why the postmaster should be like very obviously one-sided politically. Like, shouldn't he try and or he or she try and be like somewhat of an independent? I don't know. Just my two cents. Yeah, I, I think there's a case to be made about that for like every <laughs> position like that. But unfortunately, you know, they're they're appointed by the president. They're going to have their bias. They're going to have you know some connection before they're appointed to that and. Yeah, this is an interesting one because President Biden kept Louis DeJoy on and, you know, now here we are being like, hey, buddy, buy some EVs. <laughs> All right, let's get into our last quick hit of the week, and it is from EOS, where Jennifer Schmidt writes, planting wetlands could help stave off climate catastrophe. Quick caveat before we get into this. This is not a new cure-all for the climate crisis. This is another piece of the puzzle in fighting different aspects of climate change. And the reason I bring that up is because I don't want this to turn into one of those, oh, we don't have to cut our carbon emissions. We just need to restore <laughs> our wetlands the way that people do that with carbon capture. Like it's it's an everything sort of thing. Yeah. It's, it's not like it's, you know, pick one thing and go for that solution. It's all a piece of this puzzle. Yeah, exactly. It's like the, um, the Kiss the Ground documentary we watched. It, yeah. Solving the soil issue is a great start, but it's not going to do everything to solve climate change. Yeah. And this is, you know, another one of those things. It's going to help a lot. It's not the answer. It's an answer. This article says that forests sequester less carbon than peatlands, salt marshes, and other coastal and inland wetlands. Those wetlands only cover 1% of the Earth's surface but store 20% of the planet's ecosystem carbon. Around 50% of the carbon buried in these environments comes from its filtered organic matter, according to the study that the article is about. So basically half of the carbon in wetlands comes from decaying leaves, plants, and animals. Wow. So yeah, a quote from the article that puts how important wetlands are into perspective is, wetlands may be a powerhouse of sequestration and storage, but their limited area means that they store a fraction of the total carbon sequestered in oceans and forests. The world's biggest sinks, owing to their sheer size. Nevertheless, a wetland's greater carbon density means that removing a patch of it has a bigger impact on atmospheric carbon than removing a patch of forest. Around 1% of the world's wetlands are lost each year due to construction, farming, and sea level rise. This accounts for 5% of our annual carbon emissions every year as the stored carbon in the environment is released to the atmosphere. The article then goes on to talk about how we have policies in place to limit wetland loss, but not as much to restore wetlands that have already been damaged. Peter Kariva, a conservation biologist and president and CEO of Aquarium of the Pacific, was not involved in the study, but he says that people who want to mitigate climate change should plant a wetland and calls it huge bang for your buck. Yeah, the study itself brings up that the way we look at restoration needs to be updated too. Instead of spreading out wetland plantings so that they're not competing with each other, we should just club wetland grasses and plants to prevent storm surge from doing as much damage. It's going to maximize a wetland's value as a carbon sink, give the plantings a better chance of survival, and it's a lot less expensive than planting bigger plants that are separated. So wetlands prevent storm surge? How does that work exactly? They're, they're kind of the buffer between 
the the dry upland region and then whether it's you know a marsh or a river so the wetland is going to be that area in between the stream bed and the upland dry area so in between you you know you have your stream bed you have your wetland then you have your wetland buffer and then that's where you have your garden because we're not going to use the l word anymore (laughs) Uh, so yeah it's it's kind of a buffer so anytime there's a big storm you know it's going to flow downhill and a wetland isn't going to occur just on totally flat land it's going to occur at the bottom of a little like or, or a big ditch where water starts to pool so everything that spreads out around that as that water saturates into the soil that's going to create your wetland so the more wetland plants there the less stormwater runoff that gets into the ah. actual you know wetland or stream bed or whatever it is that you're protecting with those plants gotcha okay that makes more sense yeah and slightly off topic, but a story like this really highlights the importance of local politics to me. You know, in the last segment, we talked about writing to your senators, your congresspeople. But this one, this is all about local for me, because most municipalities have a wetland ordinance that requires mitigation for any sort of work done in the wetland buffer. And they will ban all avoidable work through a wetland itself. So if you're wondering how to get involved with climate change on a local level, get more information on your town or your city, you know, wherever it is you call home, get more information on their wetland control commission, their wetland inspector, or any sort of wetland law, rule, ordinance, whatever they want to call it and whatever body they call it. That's a good place to start. Wow. That's awesome. Did not even know that a wetland inspector existed as a job that I could do. That's great. So... I don't think we ever spoke about this, but I actually served as the wetland inspector for a town at one no of my way. old jobs. Yeah, I don't want to like bring that all up too much on the air and, and dox myself. But yes, I was the wetland inspector for a town while I was an environmental planner at my old job. So uh, yeah, got to examine some plants, got to examine some soil and tell people you can't build your pool here. You got to move it 30 feet north. That way it's outside of this wetland buffer. <laughs> or if you want to build it in the buffer... I'm going to need a lot of plantings. And unfortunately I am not very pro business. So some of the, some of the people that wanted their pools were not thrilled with uh, how much mitigation I wanted from them. I was a stickler. (laughs) (laughs) Some guy's going to like reach out to you like, Matt, I knew that was you. You son of a gun. You you didn't let me put my pool in. (laughs) Yeah. Some people got pissed. Some people understood. And I remember one of the projects that I can't talk about because of NDAs. um, They were, doing work in a wetland area and I was like you know what we're building here a pollinator garden to offset the damage and I hope that that is going to go through during the final plans but I was like this should not get approved without that because if you're going to do some damage we need more pollinators to restore the local crops so wow yeah I was I was I was really bringing it to that one (laughs) I love it I love the I love that tenacity that's what we got to do man (laughs) All right, that will do it for today's episode of TPT. On Monday, we're going to be back for a feature story about Australia's new prime minister. Yeah, so we're going to talk about the country's history of climate skepticism and climate skepticism around the world as well. Yeah, and a little little bonus, we're also going to talk about a problem that Australia and the U.S. have shared for a while when it comes to climate skeptics. 
Until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can. Follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. And go give Nick some love. Every show, every symphonic masterpiece during <laughs> each show is produced by this man across the screen from me right now. Nick, where can people hear more from you? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash Cape. And that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, y'all. And I'm also going to switch up all the music because I know you guys had been hearing the same music this whole time that I was gone. Are we calling this season two? Oh, you know what? It might it might have to be season two, Matt, because we started this show... June 4th of last year. In June. Wow. Okay. Maybe we should have had like a... Maybe we should have had like a... Um, Holy crap, it's been a year episode, but maybe, yeah, well, maybe, maybe you shouldn't year. have planned your vacation around TPT. Oh. <laughs> All right, if you're still sticking around for this episode, I hope you enjoyed that bickering. Our logo is made by Kaylee Vitz. Have a great weekend, and we will catch you right here on Monday. Peace.